why didn't Trump ban TikTok? Like, why didn't that get done? Uh, a little bit of bureaucracy. And then, frankly, you had senior leaders in the administration who didn't want to close the deal out. There were a couple of us advocating for it, and we ran into a buzzsaw. CEO and Secretary Mike Pompeo was an entrepreneur, a congressman. He led the CIA. He ran the State Department under President Trump. What's he think of what's going on in the world today in Russia and Ukraine? They taxed in Iran. What was it like negotiating with dictators around the world? Are we being invaded by aliens with balloons? Let's talk to Secretary Mike Pompeo. Really honored to have Secretary Mike Pompeo with us today. Thank you for joining, Mr. Secretary. Joe, it's great to be with you. Uh, we'll have a good time. And, and you were obviously a former congressman. You were CIA director. Secretary of State, and you have a new book out called Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a good read. It's the history of the four years, the things we did, both successes and failures, but really how we thought about America. You talk, you, you know, your show is about American optimism. We believe deeply in this country, and we were working every day to try and make folks a little safer and a, a little more prosperous. You know, I want to start with a part of your background that's sometimes overlooked. After West Point and Harvard Law, you landed at a big law firm in D.C., but then you left to start an aerospace company in Wichita. Why do you take that risk, and, and why Wichita? Uh, Wichita just ended up being the place where the company we bought it was uh, was located. It was an aerospace defense company. It made uh, high-end gears for uh, Lockheed, uh, Boeing, Cessna, uh, so aer- aerospace defense uh, product. Uh, I, I took the I took the risk because uh, I really wanted to go create something. Uh, I wanted to do something that was different than just uh, working as a lawyer. Actually, it was a good firm, great people, very talented, very smart. Um, but I had a chance to start this with company with three of my best friends in the whole world. And we did it for six or seven years. It was a total blast. Uh, we built a 400-person operation that was making all kinds of really hard structural goods for the aircraft industry. It was an awful lot of fun. And we took care of a bunch of families, too. I love that background as a builder. You don't get too many builders running things in DC. You especially don't get too many builders running the State Department. That's a <laughs> that's an interesting combination. You know, one of my big pet peeves in general is these unaccountable bureaucracies, and it's so hard to deal with them. What do you do to inject some of that business and risk taking energy in, into those places when you were there as a leader? Oh my, Joe! You know, it was a mess at the CIA. It was actually different at the CIA. You had risk takers there. You had people that understood how to put uh, projects in place, deliver measurable goods, right? The things we do in the business world. Uh, the State Department is fundamentally different than that. Uh, three unions, civil service rules. You couldn't promote based on merit, right? You couldn't allocate resources. You'd get appropriate funds. You couldn't allocate resources on a risk-adjusted basis. And so we tried to do it culturally. We, we attempted to focus everyone on the mission. We tried to reward people who were actually delivering on the, uh, the agenda that we had laid out for them. I must say, Joe, I 70,000 people, a uh, thousand days. I, I'm not sure I left that place materially better than where I began. We we did a lot, but we had to work around and through what was the most resistant, unaccountable bureaucracy that one that I've ever been a part of. So if you were going to get to do it again, or let's say you're in charge, you're the president now, like what do you do with the State Department? How do you fix these places? Like What can our country do to make these places less dysfunctional? Oh my goodness! Three three thoughts that just that I witnessed. First of all, you you got to change. You, you need legislative change, but you got to change the rules. 
There, there should be no government unions. It's just a non, it's a non sequitur. Mm-hmm. Uh, they should they should have rules there where they work at will, just like every other employee. They should be terminable if they're just not getting it done. You got to go find something better for them to do. Um, second, you got to get your team on the field. Joe, for I came in as Secretary of State roughly eighteen months into the administration. We still had massive number of people from the previous administration, and they certainly weren't going to do the things we wanted them to do. Mm. Uh, and then the last place is you have to be absolutely ruthless in holding these folks accountable with the tools that you are given. And that includes how you hire and train. You you would know this, Joe, from the businesses you've been involved in. That's seed corn. The, the folks you put in the organization today, 10 years from now, are your middle management team, right? They're the folks that are actually executing at scale projects. And so the State Department training and hiring program needs to be fundamentally redone, focused on mission, not on diversity, equity and inclusion, but based on pure merit. Yeah, you, you wrote a lot about this is obsession with celebrating identity over merit, right? It's a form of wokeness that means who cares how well they've done? What's their identity? Is that you see that a lot in government? Uh, everywhere, writ large. I'm, I'm especially worried about the incredibly unique organization of the United States military. I was a uh, young officer 30 years ago, 35 years ago. Boy, when it loses mission focus, bad things happen. Uh, But by the way, bad things happen. You're not as secure. They're not as capable. But bad things happen because it's also been an an important cultural jumping off point. For so many young guys and gals, they say, yep, I'm going to go be a Marine for a couple of years. I'm going to enlist and be a, a sailor. When, when you are now saying, hey, you know what, we're going to we're going to make sure your vehicles are all carbon neutral and we're going to guarantee you a safe space. Like that is not what a kid who's thinking about joining the military is looking for. They want to go do mission. And today, across the government broadly, this ideal of 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 equity has seeped in in terms of, hey, how good are you at what it is we're ask, actually asking you to do? Yeah, this is a huge concern of mine. It feels like America was great as a frontier nation. On the frontier, there's accountability, right? There's there's danger, there's risk, there's boldness, and you have to be bold. And if it doesn't work out, then you know you have to change what you're doing. And it feels like all these parts of our government are so protected and they're un- so unaccountable that I think this like kind of stuff seeps in, right? Because they don't actually have to perform. So instead, they're virtue signaling nonsense. That's absolutely right. The other thing you see happen is that when new leaders come in with ideas that are different. They resist it because there's no reward for taking risk, literally none. Hide in a corner, get promoted, become a GS-12, next year GS-13, two years later GS-14, and you can retire with a pretty good pension at age 40. This is just this is an, an anathema to the American work ethic, to the things that made America great. And it is now deeply embedded in this bureaucratic process. And it will take a president who, who by the way, it can be done. But the president's got to focus on it. They're going to have to spend some political capital. Yep. They're going to go have to break heads on Capitol Hill, too. That is, this is not just a Democrat problem. We often try to say, well, conservatives have this better. We mm-hmm. proposed a budget, Joe, about two-thirds of the State Department budget, think $45 billion instead of $70 billion. And each year, both Republican and Democrats alike on Capitol Hill said, nope, we're going to give you $70 billion. It's, Joe, it's, I could have yeah. done the mission with $40 billion. I'm convinced of it. Yeah, no, there's definitely there's definitely people on both sides who who are not bold enough, not willing to stand up. I hope we get a bold president who could do this. You know, speaking of boldness, you've had the fortune of meeting some of the world's worst authoritarians, Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, President Xi. How do you prepare for those interactions? How do you project strength in those moments? You got to know what you're looking for, know where your boundaries are, and just be laser focused. So I would describe that as a significant preparation. Don't walk into a meeting just thinking, I got this, I can wing it. 
be prepared, know what they're thinking, show up. It's it's not terribly different than the risk taking I took at their airspace, the machine shop in Kansas. Uh, when you show up with a customer, here's the product, here's the value proposition, here's the here's where I'm going. Happy to haggle on price a little bit with you, um, but I know the worth of what it is I'm delivering. And I had the good fortune; I was America's Secretary of State, so when I was meeting to them with them, we had a lot of value we could demonstrate mm-hmm. uh, to them, and uh, a very capable military to back up that diplomacy. Uh, and we we always tried to make clear this this wasn't about hostility to, with none of them. We had an objective that we wanted for America in Afghanistan. We wanted to get out. In Russia, we wanted to make sure their thousand nuclear warheads were contained, and we didn't want them to invade Europe. And a longer list for the Chinese Communist Party. But we were pretty clear about our expectations, and we were prepared in each of those meetings. Uh, they didn't. We didn't always succeed, Joe. We didn't get everything we wanted, but there was no ambiguity, and we didn't waste a lot of time sending back really nice notes about a constructive meeting. You'd plan, you'd game these things out ahead of time. You have different scenarios, different types of things they might ask for and try to be ready. Were you generally ready for most of what they asked? Was that generally how these things worked? Generally speaking, uh, we, we were prepared. The team would have done enough work uh, to talk to their team before we showed up. So we kind of knew where the uh, the rubber met the road. I would also, Joe, because I was the Secretary of State, I would always also make sure that I had the authority I needed from the president. That is, I knew the boundaries Uh, for my negotiating space. So I I knew the things I could concede and the places we had to go fight to get what we really needed. So I always felt that we were uh, adequately prepared for those meetings. Uh, There are a handful of times somebody uh, comes out of left field and surprises you, and hopefully you can actually turn those into opportunity. So that's interesting because I always see President Trump as someone who, you know, good intuition, but often shot from the hip. Could you really sit down with him and prepare like all the different boundary scenarios ahead of time? Is Is that how it could work with him? He wasn't. He what I, the process I just described was different from his for sure. Uh, <laughs> he, he was someone who often operated more by instinct. Yes, but it was also the case that I would. I, I just knew, right? Like, I'm if I sign America up for this, I got to make sure that the boss is on board. And so I was always incredibly diligent. To say, sir, I'm going to meet with so and so. Here's where I think this lands. Um, I may end up in this position that's minus ten percent. This position that's plus five. Good to go with any of those, Mr. President. And he'd say, nope, I don't want you to do that. Or, yeah, that sounds fine. I knew I had my space yep. to go have that conversation. Was there? Can you tell us, were there any big surprises when any of these meetings that you can mention? Or maybe, I don't know if it's still secret. Oh, goodness. You know, one that was a big surprise to the downside was in Hanoi. The second time President Trump had a summit with Chairman Kim. Mm-hmm. We, 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 I speak for myself. I actually believe we had a substantive deal that would have been really good for the whole world and certainly for America. And when we got to Hanoi, uh, I was... Uh, disappointed understates it. Uh, Chairman Kim kind of walk, walked away from what we understood he had agreed to, what he had told me himself. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd forced the president to travel thousands of miles only to find that this thing fell apart. Uh, I, I take full responsibility for uh, not doing a better job of preparing, but we were really surprised. There's someone on his side that had some different incentive or something that, that, that did something you guys didn't know. Uh, it's hard to know. I, if you made me guess, what really happened was that uh, the Chinese told him that what he had agreed to was unacceptable to them for a host wow. of reasons. The timing, maybe the magnitude of what they were doing. He may have thought he had full sign off and authority, but as powerful as Chairman Kim is, he still answers to Xi Jinping in China pretty directly. I, I always felt like the Chinese keep the North Koreans around in a little bit of a crazier situation because it distracts from a lot of what goes on in yeah. China, right? No, I, I think that's right. I think if we'd have resolved this, this would have been this would have been one less thing for us to to suffer from, and one less thing we had to focus on, and that would work to their detriment. So I think you've nailed it there. 
Speaking of China as the big brother in, in a couple relationships, obviously they're a lot more powerful in a lot of ways than Russia and, and then Putin. It feels like they must have had to sign off for Russia to do what they're, what they're doing right now. Is that the dynamic that we see in general? Boy, I, you know, I, I don't know that they would have signed off on this. Uh, it would have been a little more nuanced than that. They certainly would have been prepared, briefed for it. Uh, they might have been asked what they thought. But I think Putin had his full intention of doing this, uh, regardless of what Xi Jinping said. But having now failed, having now mm-hmm. demonstrably been a- unable to execute the at least the military and diplomatic objectives of the invasion of Europe, I think she has even more leverage over Vladimir Putin today. Think, uh, think energy as their sole customer, near sole customer, mm-hmm. uh, a host, a host of places in the diplomatic world where China now has even more capacity to control what Vladimir Putin does going forward. It's energy, it's ag products. They seem to be really dominant here in terms of, I, I wonder if there's not things they're doing to test and see how the West responds to things that China's interested in and possibly doing later too. One has to assume there's something like this. Yeah, it would make perfect sense. I think we'll see more and more of that. We'll see ever closer relationships. Frankly, the the Iron Triangle, or if you want to include North Korea quadrilateral between Iran, Russia, China, and North Korea is likely to get even tighter. Speaking of Russia and Ukraine, you know, at first the U.S. said it would only provide defensive weapons, but now we've sent tanks. They're asking for fighter jets next. You know, the Ukrainian people have obviously fought valiantly, but but where is this headed? Like, should we be giving them fighter jets? Should we be negotiating an off-ramp? What's the right direction here? Oh, boy, you know, uh, there, there will be a negotiated solution to this. So we, we should absolutely all start thinking about what that looks like. I always come at this, Joe, from uh, what's in America's best interest. Our interest is in this thing ending quickly with Vladimir Putin not in con- political control of any of the real estate in Europe. Yeah. So to the extent we they ask us for tools, not our boys and girls, we ought to provide them. So, you know, we always get focused on hardware. I, maybe it's because I was a CI director, but I always think about the information that we can provide them to help them execute this conflict effectively and begin to shape Putin's perception of risk in ways that we have not been able to do so far. And then, you know, the Ukrainians and the Russians will all have to find a place which they can get to. And our our ask in that conversation should be very clearly a clean line that is demarcated and I'll call it permanency, knowing full well that there's no such thing in permanency, but something that isn't two years or four years of a ceasefire, but rather something that creates a boundary there where we're not right back in this soup just a handful of years it from now. It feels like you have to at least give Putin something that at least feels a little bit like some sort of a win. Otherwise, he's just totally toast and he can't give up. I don't want to give him a win. He's a jerk and he's a bad guy. So it seems like a really hard thing to to get right here. That's why it's still going on and why it's my expectation it goes on for a while. But if you read just if you read much history, certainly his, uh, history of Europe, you exhaustion takes place. And what seems impossible on Wednesday, a month from now, two months, six months from now is plausible. That's that's been the case in each of the previous conflicts. I, I think at the time when I was a young soldier, I left. I was patrolling. Yo, I'm not sure what happened there. Sorry about that. I think, I think it was Xi Jinping. He took you offline. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I left Germany in October of 89, two weeks before the wall came down. I'd been patrolling that wall for three years. We had no hint that this was going to happen. I suspect that there will come a day when we'll all be surprised and they'll, they'll find a way to an accommodation that works for everyone there. And uh, the only way to drive that is we ought to provide the Ukrainians with the things they're prepared to fight and die with. And if we do that, we're more likely to get to that day more quickly. And that matters to America an awful lot.
No, it does. And, you know, speaking also of recent events, it appears Israel recently took out some Iranian drone factories that were supplying drones to Russia. How significant is that development? Yeah, big deal. Uh, I don't know the scope of the damage that they did to the facility or that was done to the facility. Uh, but um, I, as a CIA director, I was very involved in lots of the work that was done alongside of Mossad to make sure that we helped our friends in Israel and protected America, too. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see if they were able to slow that program down. The, the heck of the thing is, Joe, with any of these, it's temporary. They'll they'll find a way. They'll find a workaround. They'll rebuild. They're They're pretty damn creative and pretty persistent. Let's talk about one of the most optimistic foreign policy achievements of the past several decades, which was the Abraham Accords. Yeah. How did the foreign policy establishment miss this? And how did your team make it happen? Oh, goodness. I, you know, they, they missed it because they were in the rut. They were in the uh, can't do nothing until Palestine is solved. Uh, and they missed what was happening in Gulf Arab states. And so it wasn't just my team. It was uh, it was uh, Jared Kushner, Steve Mnuchin. There were a whole bunch of hands that made it happen. All the leaders. Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Trump all came together. We um, we just decided, you know, look, let's see if there's a, a way to work through this. Let's see if we can't satisfy the requirements of these Gulf Arab states to make it in their best interest to make peace with Israel. And it took us, goodness, uh, three years or so to fight our way through that and to figure it out. Uh, but ultimately, they concluded, as you know, as in any deal, every every party's got to think they improve their lie. Yep. And we 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 ultimately got to a place where. That history, that overlay of, boy, we'll have riots in the street, in the Arab street, if we make peace with Israel, uh, came to be seen as hollow. And these leaders stood up. Uh, the United States was with them. We provided the uh, the assurances they needed. And we, we, uh, we, we made it less likely. Here's the best news from my perspective, Joe. We made it less likely that some young man or some young lady will ever have to fight and die in the Middle East. I love it. No, that's That's right. And what's next? Will Saudi Arabia join the Accords? Like, how different could the Middle East look in ten or twenty years with the Vietnam? Oh, I think so. I'm praying that they all do. We were uh, less talked about as we were working with the large Muslim countries in Asia as well. We often think about Israel and the Muslim nations of the Gulf, but we shouldn't forget that Islam's biggest adherents sit in Indonesia, Pakistan, Malaysia. Uh, places in Southeast Asia, and we were working on them. I hope they will all find their way to say, "Look, this is a this is silly to not recognize a sovereign nation like Israel is is not in our country's best interest." And they'll find a way to battle the domestic demons that they've had, the domestic challenges they've had, and get to the right outcome. Yeah, well, it's really extraordinary as an achievement. I know your relationships in the Middle East were were, were key to that, so you guys should be really proud of what you did. I have to ask you, uh, while I have you, about these balloons that have been going on recently. Speaking of recent events. Uh, it's, it's, it's the whole thing. seems a little bit silly, but I think, I think one of the, one of the generals said he can't rule out aliens, which I'm not sure that was a good thing for him to say, but what's, what's yeah. going on here? I saw that. I, the, the response to that question to say, we can't rule out anything. Just let the internet go wild. Uh, <laughs> goodness gracious. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there was a better solution. Uh, I suspect not aliens. Uh, uh, we certainly know that one of them came from uh, the Chinese communist party. I don't know what the others were, but I'll bet when we, figure it out. They came from uh, one of our adversaries. Uh, they're, they're testing, you know, Joe, that they, they probably collected from that balloon something, maybe that they had alternative collection methodologies as well. So perhaps not that accretive to the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. But man, the fact that that thing flew over our sovereign airplace, airspace for five days hurt us geopolitically. And it's especially the case when it plays to type. You 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 would know this. Mm -hmm. When someone makes an error and it's out of form, everybody kind of goes, oh, that was just a, an error. When that error is to form, when 
when you've you know abandoned Afghanistan and had 13 Americans killed, when you talked about a minor incursion into Ukraine being okay, and then you let a Chinese balloon fly across your country for five days, it just it's that weakness is provocative, and I'm very worried about a cascading series of potential crises befalling America because our leadership didn't demonstrate sort of a basic rule of bad thing, sovereign airspace, make sure that you know what it is and then make it go away. No, actually, I mean, the air is definitely true to form for, the, for our, yeah, our current, yeah, for our current exactly. president. Speaking of China and errors that are true to form or not true to form, why didn't Trump ban TikTok? Like, why didn't that get done? Uh, a little bit of bureaucracy. And then, frankly, uh, you had senior leaders in the administration who didn't want to close the deal out. Uh, there were a couple of us advocating for it, and we ran into a buzzsaw. And then there was, we were a little late, Joe, to be honest with you. So this really began within the last 10, 12 months of our time that we were focused on this. And um, there was an alternative solution posed, which was to, you know, Americanize the data set yeah. or put the cloud here. And that caused the clock to run out. And we didn't get either of them done, though. So now they're still collecting data and brainwashing our kids. Yeah. Uh, it is it is most unfortunate. We, WeChat presents a similar set of issues as well for companies that are using WeChat as a payment tool or communications tool. You, I, you're smarter on this than me, um, yep. but we should never underestimate the CCP's use of communications technology to gather data on our. I, I definitely don't use. They used to always try to make you use WeChat to do business in Asia. Right. right. And, and exactly. I don't, I don't do that in all of my phones. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Ten yeah, years yeah. ago, you can forgive us for being naive. We, no one, no one really realized which way this stuff was going. You know. No, you know, I think that's perfect too. I'll, I'll hear folks talk about that. I'm like, okay, happy to forgive you for your decision back in 2010. Yeah. Um, but, but a decision you make tomorrow. Now, now that's with foreknowledge. I, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Got to be careful. And, you know, I want to ask one more question about the Trump administration in general. You guys got a lot of good things done. Like any administration, there is internal politics. A lot of this stuff is coming out. You said John Polton should be in jail. I thought that was interesting. I think Nikki Haley tried to replace VP Pence as a rumor is what it seems like. it. There's all sorts of things. Was this was this normal? First of all, is this normal administration? And then like like were there people who were who were misbehaving? Ah, uh, you know, I don't know. Normal. I've only been in one. I've read the books. Uh, there's, there's often a lot of noise, you know, uh, Rumsfeld and Weinberger and the gang always seemed like they were running around battling. Uh, you know, I, I, I tried not to talk much about this sort of the internal dynamic, but there were a couple big drivers um, that just when, when you talk about the bureaucracy behaving badly, it would be unfair to leave out someone like Ambassador Bolton, who wrote a book while we were still in office. Yikes. But, yeah, that's a little but, much. So, so that's so, you know, fair enough to tell stories after the president's gone. But I was still dealing with these leaders and he's president. John Bolton's out telling stories that I, I believe had classified information uh, about ongoing decision making. I mean, that's just frustrating. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be diplomatic. Uh, that's bad form. Yep. And then uh, the second one with respect to Ambassador Haley, I uh, Joe, you would have seen this. There are lots of folks telling all of us run. Right. Everything Donald Trump turns, anyone he he engages with turns to dust or ends up in jail or all bad. Uh, so the pressure on all of us to leave from the media and even from our own friends was pretty staggering. Mm -hmm. I just felt like folks who did that, I didn't have any time for. Uh, I I treasured every single minute that I had. It's not that I didn't get it wrong sometimes, but man, I was trying every single minute. And I wasn't going to give up a second. And when I saw those who either either wouldn't join the team when they had valuable assets or resources they could have provided us or got in, punched their ticket, and then went on. It just, it frustrated me because it meant more transition, more turbulence, 
and more work for you're all do, you're of us. doing your duty to the country to be a key leader and, and make sure everything was running the right way and we're going to leave it i like was that. trying we started the show, uh, Mr. Secretary, to push back on some of the pessimism and division in America. And many people believe our best days are behind us, or even some people say we're never great to begin with these days. You know, what are the ideas and principles behind America's founding mean to you and mean to the world? And how should we think about America's role in the world? You know, this is at least a good chunk of why I wrote Never Give It Inch. The subtitle is Fighting for the America I Love. Yeah, right it's, uh, we, we are an exceptional nation. We were founded in an exceptional way. We should be proud of that. I was blessed to work for a president who never told me to go grovel, go apologize for America. Uh, we, 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 it's not that we didn't make mistakes. It was that we just knew, like, without us, this is a really dark world. And we were a, good, a force for good every place that we went. I'm still convinced that's the case, that the next 250 years are going to be good years for our country. But it's going to take us all getting that right. And it starts here at home, starts teaching our kids precisely what I just described about the greatness of America. It's not a racist country. There's not an oppressor class. Work your tail off. Good things will happen. Uh, there's opportunity for all. And if we educate our kids and teach them math and reading and writing and reasoning, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get that next generation of greatness for our country, too. I love it. Well, that's a great note to end on, Mr. Secretary. Mike Pompeo, never give an inch. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Joe. Bless you. Have a good one. 